Внимание! Говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Владимир Путин обсессен с Украиной. Back in 2008, he famously told U.S. President George W. Bush that it was not even a real country. In a press conference following his summit with current U.S. President Joe Biden, Putin became visibly animated, indeed almost unhinged, when talking about Ukraine. And this week, Putin published an essay on the historical unity of Russia and Ukraine, in which he argued, among other things, that present-day Ukraine is an artificial construct of the Soviet era, and that Ukrainian sovereignty is only possible in partnership with Russia. So what does Putin's obsession with delegitimizing Ukraine's statehood tell us about his state of mind and Russian policy toward Ukraine and beyond going forward? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the wonderful Estonian capital city of Tallinn is veteran Russia watcher James Scher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Welcome back to the vertical, James. It has been way too long. Thank you. It's a pleasure being back. Pleasure to have you. And also with us from Moscow is Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Welcome back to The Vertical Costume. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for appearing. So my my first reaction to Putin's so-called essay um, was that it was it was neither new nor was it surprising. I mean, Putin's claim that, quote, true sovereignty of Ukraine is possible only in partnership with Russia is grotesquely disingenuous. Um, for Ukraine, partnership with Russia has mainly meant subjugation by Russia. But we've heard this from Putin before. Uh, Putin's claim that Russia and Ukraine share, quote, spiritual, human, and civilizational ties that have formed for centuries and have been rooted in the same sources disregards and downplays Ukraine's historical connection to Europe, independent of Russia, as part of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. But this claim by Putin is also nothing new. Putin's so-called essay reveals more about him than it does about Ukraine. It reveals a revanchist ruler who's prepared to construct false historical narratives to justify his imperial fever dreams. But we already knew that. So, Kostya, how did you interpret this essay? Why write this essay? Why now? What does it signify? First of all, I think, Brian, that uh, Putin's been increasingly involved in this Ukraine uh, definition sort of business. Since uh, probably, I would say, quite some time, it is part, to the extent we can understand his mentality, it is part of his quest for, um, for, for, for historical significance, for his place in history. And um, that is nothing new, indeed, as you said. But it seems that two things coincide. One is uh, the increasing... Uh, influence of his security services advisors 
because he stays holed up in his bunker near Moscow, and people he sees have to be quarantined for, for two weeks or something like that, it is quite evident that in such circumstances, uh, his advisors from Mr. Patrushev's Security Council uh, and all sorts of people uh, from the ex-KGB bring him all sorts of spravki or uh, reports on different events inside Russia and, and abroad, have acquired a, a significant, probably even crucial influence. So uh, when you read his piece, you know, the, the long ears of the KGB, quote-unquote, analysts are sticking out of it by a mile. On top of it, you had another, another series of events that I think pushed him to talk about it. And that is, first and foremost of all, Vladimir Zelensky's sanction to arrest, uh, put under house arrest, Viktor Medvedchuk, mm -hmm. uh, head of the For Life party in Ukraine, which is the most pro-Moscow, pro-Kremlin uh, party in Ukraine parliament. He also happens to be, uh, 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 his daughter, Medvedchuk's daughter, happens to be uh, Putin's goddaughter. And Putin famously sees politics uh, through a very uh, personal lens once it touches upon people that are close to him. And Medvedchuk seems to have been a person for years, I don't know, I think, I hope yeah. James will agree with me, who's been actually subtly forming Putin's yes, views of Ukraine and what happens inside Ukraine. So the arrest of house arrest of Medvedchuk, on top of uh, complete elimination of uh, Medvedchuk's media empire by, by Zelensky, definitely is seen by Putin as something very personal. If you add to it uh, increased collaboration of Kiev uh, with NATO and this upcoming deal, which may be realized in the coming months, uh, of Ukraine buying actually modern, uh, signing a contract to buy modern warships from the United Kingdom, uh, definitely showed to Putin or evoked this spectrum of NATO basically uh, making itself comfortable uh, in Ukraine. And this is what he talked to when he was uh, mm. uh, uh, reminding us of this kind of flight times of missiles from Ukraine to Moscow and so forth. So I think that this long-standing uh, obsession with Ukraine has been exacerbated by isolation, which has a lot of time to, you know, uh, conduct huge board sessions with uh, Chamberlain and Stalin and it's kind of indulge his obsession in recent history and uh, his dreams of new Russian empire with the very specific things that happened on the ground in Ukraine. I think this is what pushed him to uh, publish this uh, amazing, I mean, stunning piece, which I, I remember as a teenager and as a uh, young person uh, going through Brezhnev's interviews to Der Spiegel, you know, in, in the days of late detente. And this is something that, I mean, compared to that, Brezhnev looks like a real, real, real global statesman of realist school. And this is something that is I never expected the Russian head of state to uh, to publish. Maybe we have to go all the way back to Stalin and his exercises in philology uh, and semantics uh, that uh, remind me of that. Do you think this is a like a precursor to some kind of uh, of action? Do you do, do do should we be concerned? I my my colleague at the at the Atlantic Council, Peter Dickerson, wrote a wrote a very good column saying um, the world cannot ignore Putin's Ukraine obsession because it is dangerous. It is a great column. I read it, and I think that this is Putin's tactics and strategy. At the same time, he wants to keep everyone on their toes. Joe Biden wanted 
predictability from Putin. Ho, ho, ho. Well, James and I, we wrote about it. Don't expect it. Because predictability, uh, you know, is a poor man's peep show. You know, it's something that uh, really, the it's, it's the only real geostrategic weapon of a country that has been characterized uh, by Barack Obama, not my favorite US president, but still he was right spot on that. Not my favorite US president, but he was spot on on that. Russia is a regional power in many respects, well, apart from nuclear weapons and a P5 uh, membership. Uh, and if you are in such position, being unpredictable is your only weapon. Putin is never going to, yep. uh, to, 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 to forsake it. So we don't know whether Putin really is preparing to launch an assault uh, on Ukraine in some form, whether he just prepares the ground for, for, for dropping uh, the gas transit through Ukraine after Nord Stream 2 is uh, online, uh, whether he wants to, at a certain point in time, recognize uh, the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk republics uh, to burnish his uh, Russian nationalist credentials, maybe after he gobbles up Belarus, we don't know. He opens this options, uh, mm -hmm. pretty much, uh, sort of. Uh, he keeps his options open, but it's very clear he he he, he lined up. He, he he made up. He, it's very clear the list of things uh, you can do. Uh, rather, Vladimir Zelensky and uh, and the West, uh, who famously, if you will, rather infamously, when you read if you read Putin's piece, who the West who rules, in fact, Ukraine and. And uh, the, the Western puppeteers, as they would have said in prayer. Mm -hmm. they, there's a list of things they have to do. A, it's very clear, it's implicit. Set free Medvedchuk. Mm -hmm. B, start negotiating with the so-called republics, and that is a direct way mm -hmm. to federalization of Ukraine. And number three, uh, make some good noises about uh, the fact that, well, actually, we thought long and hard, and we decided that NATO is not for us. Mm -hmm. If you do it, then uh, uh, Putin will be pacified, but let us uh, let us not delude ourselves. He won't be. Right, and Zelensky's response was very telling because he's not going to do any of those things. He was trolling Putin, basically saying, "It's I'm surprised a, a head of state has time to to write something this long-winded." This is really, really a very smart observation because Putin shows us that neither COVID nineteen. A whatever third wave that is hitting Russia very hard now, a seat in Moscow, nor uh, the very, very precarious state of the national economy as, well, as a consequence of COVID, not only, but as one of the consequences of COVID-19, nor the uh, potential big problem with the Taliban in Central Asia. Nothing reigns as high mm -hmm. as France. Which James and I were saying all the time for seven years. Well, some people didn't want to listen, not you, Brian. I always listen to well, you. James, we were right all the bloody way. And I always <laughs> listen and I always listen to James. Uh, James, you and I were talking offline uh, yesterday about that, off mic about this yesterday. And you noted, um, you noted and brought to my attention that this essay came out shortly after Russia released its updated national security strategy. And that the two documents together may provide a window into the Kremlin elite's collective state of mind at the moment. What are your thoughts on this, actually? Thanks, Brian. Uh, let's cycle back to 2013, a year before uh, President Yanukovych left office. 
by that point, on the eve of these events, the, the Kremlin, the political security and defense establishment of Russia had come to the conclusion that when you look at NATO and EU enlargement, democracy promotion, colored revolutions, military intervention, and regime change, what you were looking at was something that by then had congealed into one overarching Western threat. And that view was there before the events of 2014 uh, occurred. The official statement of this was the national security strategy of 2015, mm -hmm. six years ago. When you read the current national security strategy, you feel as if you're hearing the same story told by a psychologically disturbed individual. That is to say, all of these orthodoxies and phobias have been fermenting for an additional six years, and this is what comes out. Now, put this together with the Ukraine article. Brian, for two reasons, you are absolutely right that there is nothing new. First of all, what it is, is a reiteration of authoritative Russian mythology, which fully crystallized in the middle of the 19th century, really germinated in the 18th century, crystallized under the great Tsar liberator, Alexander I, by the middle of the 19th century. And what's noteworthy about it, is there any truth in it? Of course there is. There's truth in most mythologies. What does it leave out? Some very significant things. The, the, the brutal truncation of this so-called common history by the Mongol conquest which set in motion three centuries of a different trajectory for what we now call Russia and now call Ukraine. That's number one. Second, in that time and since, Ukraine's growing acculturation to and um, a relationship with Europe. And thirdly, which is widely overlooked, the fact that unlike Russian orthodoxy, Ukrainian orthodoxy has never been tied to the state it's never been a creature of power. Its spiritual source has been the ecumenical patriarchate in Constantinople, not the Moscow patriarchate. Ivan Mazepa, who is perhaps the most celebrated Ukrainian nationalist in modern history, who fought alongside Karl XII at the Battle of Poltava, was an ardent, ardent, devout believer in the Orthodox faith as was Pilip Orlik, who wrote the most democratic of constitutions for a future uh, Ukrainian state. So none of this is there. Mm -hmm. Now, a third of the picture there, more or less truthfully represented, and the rest is a mixture of distortion, omission, and complete fantasy. And one other thing, which is very important, in all of this Russian thinking, and everything I've said so far, solipsism. The belief in the existential importance of Russia, not just to Russia, but to everybody else. And one of the distinctive, and I would say defining characteristics of Russian history is the practice of incorporating the identity and the history of other peoples into Russia's history. And this is what we see with Russia's whole, it's not just Putin, with Russia's whole 
cosmology about what Ukraine is and why it is, what it can be and what it cannot be. Now, just allow me um, one other point. This is, yes, I said you were right for two reasons. The second reason is that Putin has been obsessed with Ukraine since he became acting president in 2000, mm -hmm. and I suspect he was obsessed with Ukraine since it left the Soviet Union, but we didn't know who Putin was then, so it's hard to demonstrate. <laughs> uh, but um, when, um, after brutal pressure, when he was still acting president, Putin proposed to Leonid Kuchma, the president at the time, the creation of a Slavic Union with Kiev as the capital. And it's quite clear he expected Kuchma to be very interested in this proposal. Mm -hmm. Of course he was not. This illustrates the complete discontinuity, the, the, the profound cognitive dissonance that exists uh, in this relationship, which has always been disturbing, which of course now, for reasons Kostya mentioned, is, um, it is particularly disturbing. And my last little point, if you put these two documents together, and Kostya has said this at least as articulately as I have, what I think we're looking at on Russia's part is an existential struggle with something they've constructed that they call the anti-Russia. It's a struggle on the one hand against Ukraine's leadership and its uh, so-called neo-Nazi supporters. It's also an existential struggle with the West, um, which is seeking by all means to punish Russia, to isolate it, and to destroy its moral code. And thirdly, uh, as I think Kostya has also mentioned, it is an existential struggle against the opposition inside Russia mm -hmm. itself, which has become captivated by the values of the West and liberal democracy, and against this entire matrix, uh, quite logically for the Kremlin, the opposition is treasonous. So that's what we're looking at, and I fear that if you put all this together, the Kremlin is now taking Russian thinking and policy onto psychotic territory. Mark Gagliotti recently referred to the national security concept as a paranoid charter. I would go a little bit further. Than that. I think we are looking at something very disturbing. It's not as if they all know what the real truth is and they're just saying all this for opportunistic reasons. No, that's not. Uh, you could say they couldn't possibly believe these things, but I'm afraid they do. And that that is dangerous. I mean, a couple of things I noticed in the Ukraine article, just one semantic thing. Putin repeatedly referred to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth as the Polish-Lithuanian-Russian Commonwealth. Um, if, historically, parts of what is today Southern Russia were part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, as is all of what is today Ukraine, all of what is today Belarus, all of what is today Poland, and all of what is today Lithuania. But it most certainly was not a Polish-Lithuanian-Russian Commonwealth, and that kind of jumped out at me, and I was wondering why he was doing that. I think it was Instead to show this that. Example, I, I'd love to see these ancient documents because these ancient documents would have had to come out at the time when a kingdom of Lithuania had already been established, even right. before the Grand Duchy of Lithuania was established, and at a time when uh, Lithuania was um, repelling raids from people of Rus and then attacking people of Rus. Mm. So. I would love 
to know <laughs> where this comes from. Of course, there are no sources in this otherwise authoritative and uh, academically serious. Uh, no, it was short on footnotes for sure. Costia, <laughs> <laughs> do you share James' alarm that this is going into unhinged territory and that it could potentially be very dangerous? I pretty much share every opinion with share. <laughs> if you, if you, forgive me the pun, but seriously, <laughs> yes, I think this is uh, something that is extraordinary, uh, even for a kind of strongman regimes that, that of which there are a few in the world, because uh, it really is, to me, as someone who grew up in the Soviet Union, it strikes me uh, as this very toxic mix and very strong mix of KGB um, messianic KGB messianic pretensions, which are, in their turn, uh, very heavily sort of mixed with uh, different conspiracy theories. And on top of it, as a cherry on the cake, you have this, for lack of a better word, mercantilism, this, this this belief that money is all important. Uh, if you look at this uh, uh, Putin's piece, where he says that Ukraine saved $82 billion from 1991 mm. until uh, 2013 by buying gas from Russia. It would have spent more mm -hmm. if it bought it not from Russia. Essentially, it means that some kind of uh, uh, small time uh, clerk from his uh, research department, his press service, wherever, uh, dug this up, or it's the KGB people or FSB people that brought him this uh, very valuable information, which you can't verify, actually. Uh, and I think, how can you count it, basically? Uh, in fact, it's probably even more. <laughs> but this is a very, very uh, specific window on the mentality, not only of Putin, but of people who run Russia. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, this uh, portends trouble, um, not only for Ukraine, but for the Russians, who don't understand, in fact, that their ship is run by um, a crew that's, uh, that doesn't see the world as it is, but is completely sure that it sees it the right way. And this is a recipe for disaster. Uh, when will it happen? I don't know. Whether it will happen? We don't know, too, because it may all well be this kind of postmodernist uh, talk. Uh, uh, but I do think that this obsession with making history that we see in Putin, which I think uh, basically completely mm. overtook him after the annexation of Crimea, it is a factor of Russian politics. It's probably one of the most important factors of Russian politics and of Russian external policy. And just for one second, going back to what James said, the new national, the updated national security doctrine, which didn't have to be updated, nothing yep. terribly sort of important happened in these five years that called for a revision. But if you look at it from the point of view of the Kremlin, sinking deeper and deeper into right. 
theories and this ideology of besieged fortress, then you understand why why it was also updated. And the, uh, there's a third piece, James. I know you wanted to jump in here. I just want to get just very quickly. There's a third piece to this puzzle, and that was, I mean, may, which may or may not be relevant, and that is Vladislav Surkov's interview with the Financial Times, oh, which yes. got a lot of attention not not long ago. Now, when I read that, this is this was just basically in English what he wrote in Russian in Nezavisimaya Gazeta back in 2019. This whole notion of Putin's long state that Putin has formed this algorithm to rule Russia forever, and and, and, that, and that this is going to be an ideological challenge to Western democracy. James, go ahead. You wanted to say something. Well, also, read Sukhov's uh, interview uh, just when he resigned from his position as curator of uh, the whole Donbass um, situation. Um, I, I mean, he is at least as obsessed uh, uh, as Putin about all this. And again, he uh, means it, and this is the interview when he says history has shown that coercion into friendship is the only way to deal with people. Right. Yeah. Um, I just want to add one thing because it picks up a point that you both made, which is an irritant, but very significant given the influence that personalities have on Putin. And Kostya mentioned Medvedchuk. Well, now I'll give you, you know, the, the foil to Medvedchuk, obviously, is Zelensky. There is a long-standing Russian view of Ukraine that these people are hitri, uh, that they are very, very cunning, that you think you're getting on with them, and then suddenly they surprise you, and they uh, violate the rules, and they, uh, they tear up every agreement you sign with them, and you can't deal with them. Now, who is Zelensky in Putin's eyes? He's a nishtozhny uh, aktor. He's an insignificant little actor. And they thought they could accomplish a great deal with him. And it's like the elaborate preparations to catch the mouse. And then the mouse jumps up out and starts running around um, and doing his own thing. And it's not just with Mitrichuk. It's what he did at the December 2019 Minsk-Normandy format, mm -hmm. where he uh, was very robust about what was wrong with the Russian position, about, the, 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 about his own principal position, and where for the first time he said openly that the Minsk terms in some ways have to be uh, revised. So, you know, they really want to put this guy in his place. So there, there's this irritant as well. Yeah, and it's also – not only is he, you know, in Putin's eyes an insignificant actor, he's also a Russian speaker, and Putin probably thinks by virtue of that he should be a priori loyal to Moscow, which is you – know, anybody that spent any time in Ukraine knows that is not the case. Uh, Kostya, you, 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 you seem to want to say something. Uh, I think that there is a lot of this um, incomprehension of Ukraine, which actually, not only of Zelensky, but of Ukraine as such, uh, which stems from one very specific thing. Putin doesn't believe in free will. Mm -hmm. And in this respect, by the way, he can show up as many so, times as he wants uh, at uh, all the uh, main uh, orthodox celebrations, uh, standing with his candle in front of TV cameras. But he's not a Christian. Uh, because this is a very important thing. Free will is, Free will is centra central. Is, yeah. is, is, is absolutely important to all the monotheistic religions and to Christianity especially. And he doesn't believe in it. 
That's why ever since uh, the first uh, Maidan, the so-called Orange Revolution uh, uh, in 2004, rather just Orange Revolution, he repeatedly commits the same mistake. He thinks that Ukrainians are just this kind of... Uh, chess piece. Pardon, chess pieces, yes. Uh, and, and they are, in his view, uh, these, you know, uh, forgive me this kind of complete non-PC expression, you know, this kind of noble savages from Henry Ryder Hogg's novels, uh, which have to be civilized by someone or ruled by someone, because otherwise they'll run completely amok. He doesn't understand that people can go not only and demonstrate on the streets, but people can die for their convictions, and they can, as they did in, 2000, in February 2014, uh, during the uh, events in Kiev, the, the uprising in Kiev. And I think that this misjudgment completely kind of spreads to the whole of the Ukrainian system. So he can't believe that Zelensky was elected. You may think whatever you want about it. He was elected. Yes, he's an actor. Yes, he's taking selfies with people that, you know, meet him on the street. And Putin just can't believe it. He thinks it's some kind of theater which the Ukrainian oligarchs, you know, Kolomoisky, Ahmedov, it doesn't matter who, are putting up that, in fact, there must be some kind of Masonic Lodge or CIA station or something like that that really runs this madhouse. Yeah, yeah. And I think that this is why he can't take Zelensky seriously. And this is why when Zelensky says, Medvedchuk, Mr. Medvedchuk, please go under house arrest, and we're closing down your websites and your TV channels, Putin just doesn't believe it. It's like his own majordomo suddenly saying, where is the nuclear, uh, where's the nuclear button? I want to push it. Right. And I think that this is a very important thing because if Putin reads Ukraine like this, then eventually I'm afraid he's bound to commit yet another big yep. misstep. Yeah, well, no, I, I would agree with you. And I can't help but remember during the election campaign back in 2018, when Russian media was like making fun of the Ukrainian, like, look at these silly Ukrainians thinking, you know, they're having a debate between the candidates. This is stupid for the the, the, the sitting president's debate is challenger. But the reaction in Russian society was like, wow, that's cool. That's what democracy really looks like. I mean, it had the opposite effect. I would also, uh, I would kind of tweak your uh, comment about free will cost. It's basically that he doesn't believe in the free will of civil society. Yeah, he doesn't believe civil society can exist without being somehow formed and directed by some external force. Yeah, yeah. James, yeah. you wanted to jump in. Uh, yes, I mean, you see, what's interesting, um, Leonid Kuchma was certainly no insignificant actor, but in 2003, when the Russians surreptitiously moved the borders in uh, the Kerch Strait, this was a long time ago when mm -hmm. they questioned them, what happened? Kuchma was a state, at a state visit in Brazil. He immediately curtailed it. He came back. He put the entire Ukrainian Navy uh, and border service on full alert. And what was the response from Moscow? Uh, Voloshin, who was then Putin's chief of staff, impulsively said, what are these people doing? We ought to drop a bomb on them. Uh, it, it's just such a shock that these little people actually have agency and dare uh, to stick up for such mm -hmm. artificial things like national sovereignty. Now, uh, what I also find interesting, because this is not just a Putin problem, it is very hard to find anyone in Russia who has 
any credibility with the establishment at all, and even amongst a large number of sincere Democrats who are capable of talking about Ukraine without mentioning words like bardak, mess, putanta, mm -hmm. uh, confusion, mess, all these other mm -hmm. uh, derogatory expressions about Ukraine. These little people are not capable of organizing anything. And you can see how this logically leads to right. a very systematic search for a Western and, of course, U.S. hand controlling the whole mm -hmm. business. But the uh, reality— And, and okay. again, you can find evidence um, and, and connect all these dots and leave out many others um, and convince yourself that you're right. Yeah. No, and I mean, and, but the reality is, is that since 91, since regaining independence in 91 for the last 30 years, because um, we will be celebrating the 30th anniversary of Ukrainian independence um, later this year, Ukraine has had nothing but competitive elections. Every single election has been competitive. Incumbents usually lose in Ukraine, um, which if, if nothing else, that should show that there is true agency there and there is not some uh, some secret hand uh, pulling the strings. Before we move into the second half, because I'm mindful of the clock here, James, I did want to raise briefly one one thing you raised when we were talking about this uh, off mic, and that is the the idea of the besieged fortress, right? The the Asajdenaya Krepas that you talked about. I mean, I would add something to this. You see, Russia is this fortress Russia, but everybody else's sovereignty is fair game. And this is something that kind of jumped out at me in the summaries of the national security strategy that I was able to look at um, before 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 we did this recording is that there is this sense of hardening Russia. So basically, whether we're talking about media restrictions, social media, tech, um, you know, uh, undesirable organizations, foreign agents, you have all that. But yet Russia's entire foreign policy, it's premised on permeating and exploiting the openness of more democratic and open Western societies. Am I right in that in that assumption here? And is, how does that you fit know, into everything? Again, it goes back a long way. When I first started studying what used to be the KGB very seriously, a point was made by um, a real guru back then. Uh, and what he said was, compared to Western services, what you need to understand about the KGB is that it is motivated by a counterintelligence ethos. That is to say, anything anywhere in the world that can threaten Russian interests um, is seen as a security threat to be dealt with by counterintelligence means. Mm. Uh, and by preventive means. And Yeltsin himself in 1994 said to the internal counterintelligence service, which was then FSK before it became FSB, um, your job begins abroad. Any action that can uh, interfere with our interests is a threat that must be neutralized. Um, so I, this is, this is embedded. I mean, this is in the genetic code of the security and defense establishment of Russia. The same thing you and I were talking off mic about Infowar. The MOD, Russian MOD, wrote, uh, you know, a, a, a very impressive concept of information war back in 2011. And um, 
first of all, it's quite clear that what they're, what they're talking about uh, applies in peace as well as war. And secondly, it bears out everything we're looking at because it starts with the assumption the purpose of information war is to undermine the, the opponent's society and disorientate it. Um, and when you now look at this whole construct of the anti-Russia, which is both internal and external, it leads to the conclusion that anything we do in response is by definition defensive. Mm. And I really think they see themselves, when coming back to your question, when they're destabilizing the sovereignty of others as carrying out defensive actions. Mm -hmm. well, yes, def these defensive offensive actions have been a staple of, of Russian foreign policy yeah. as long as it's such true. a thing has existed. Um, this is a good note. This is a good place to shift gears. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at some of the developments in the former Soviet space and what they reveal about Putin's efforts to establish a Russian sphere of influence there. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host, my name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from the lovely Estonian capital, Tallinn, is veteran Kremlin watcher James Scher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow in the Russian Eurasia program at Chatham House and the author of the book, Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Also joining us from Moscow is the one and only Konstantin Egert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Ripple podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it boosts our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Это Навальный. Я уже свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности. С новым веком. So this week, Putin met with the beleaguered Belarusian leader, Alexander Lukashenko, in St. Petersburg, their fourth in-person meeting this year, as Russia continues to steadily expand its economic, political, and military footprint in Belarus. Also this week, Moldovan President Maya Sandu's pro-European Party of Action and Solidarity won a solid and decisive victory in parliamentary elections, defeating the pro-Moscow socialists, a development seen as weakening Russia's influence in that country. And in Georgia, a Moscow-connected oligarch, Bedzina Ivanishvili, continues to dominate the formal political process through his ruling Georgia Dream Party. But there are rumblings below the decks. Scuffles broke out in Parliament this week after opposition journalists entered the chamber and demanded the resignation of Prime Minister Irakli Garibashvili. Kostya, Russia appears to be gaining influence in Belarus, losing it in Moldova, with Georgia very much in play. That's how I see it. How do you see it? Well, I do think that we have processes that uh, basically manifested itself first uh, during the, uh, the, the, the so-called Rose Revolution, uh, the Saakashvili Revolution in Georgia in 2003. And since then, it's on and off, but it's a natural 
process of the basically continuous decomposition of the Soviet empire and all these states that appeared and instead, some of them very old Georgians uh, had their state in uh, uh, 4th century, <laughs> in, in the 4th century, you know. Uh, so uh, this is a continuing uh, process, which maybe I will not see the end of it in my lifetime. But it's clear that it's ups and downs all the time. So in a sense, you have Maya Sandu uh, very much sort of suddenly gaining huge uh, foothold uh, in uh, and pro-European forces, gaining a huge foothold in Moldova. While in Georgia, we see a, a dismal situation, a very chaotic situation, and a situation which actually, yes, one person uh, whose personal fortune exceeds uh, the Georgian state budget. Right. Continues to wield, and it's not really his personal fortune. It's Russia's money that he's a custodian yeah. of, in my opinion. Let's let's let, let, let's say, for for the sake of simplicity, it's just one person has money. Um, but I think that uh, this is an kind of up and down uh, uh, process, which uh, definitely, and Belarus, as you said, is basically now in Moscow. Most people that I meet speak about the fact that. Putin can pocket Belarus any time now. Anytime. Whether he yep. to, that's another question. But he can pocket it any time. Lukashenko probably will be forced to visit the Crimea and make this kind of uh, uh, yes, um, finally recognize finally recognize the annexation. Right, not recognize the state, but at least uh, 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 at least uh, make a visit there. Um, it is very clear that with every visit, Lukashenko's visit there, um, Putin draws Belarus in stronger and stronger. It's another question whether he would like to have it as a whatever eight new governorates or four. I don't governorate. think that's what he wants. I think he just wants to use it as a military platform to be able yeah, to do an extension of the Western I, military history. Yeah. I think that he may want a single currency. Possibly. Possibly, and and they're and they're snapping a Russian Kremlin connected oligarchs are snapping up the crown yes. jewels of the Belarusian yes. economy, if you can call them that. Um, Belruskali is, is, is yes, is and some kind of agreement on the uh, on basing not only the uh, air defense, which which is already right. there, uh, but basically. Uh, ground troops, some kind of... Well, Russian there are. I mean, our, our mutual friend Michael Kaufman has pointed out repeatedly, and he's absolutely right about this, is that Russia is doing constant military exercises with Belarus. Now, there's just one ends and another begins. And what does that mean? Well, that means you have a de facto permanent troop presence there already. I'm expecting infrastructure to start be building up. There's already agreement on a what they call a joint training base in, in western Belarus, right near the Polish and Lithuanian borders. So that's that that's in the works. That's all moving. Meanwhile, as Russia is basically buying up the country, I, I think it is getting getting dangerously close to game over there. The one thing I don't understand, and maybe either of you can 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 kind of uh, help me out here, because I don't understand why Russia acquiesced so easily in Moldova. Remember the the processes we are seeing now. Maya Sandu's victory, decisive victory in the presidential elections late last year, the the victory this past week, this this month in the in the parliamentary elections. This was all set in motion, I think, from what looked like some agreement between Russia and the West to get rid of Vlad Plahotniuk. 
you know, the oligarch who pretended to be pro-Western but was really kind of playing playing with everybody, including the Russians. Um, and, and his party was kind of the kingmaker in Moldova. And both the Russians and the West decided, let's get rid of this guy. Um, and we, we, you know, we'll live to fight another day. That's how I interpreted all of that. But the result of that has been just this meteoric rise of Maya Sandu, who is the, is the real deal. Um, and she, I mean, I, anybody that knows Maya, I mean, she is a true Democrat. She is one tough woman. And suddenly she's got the, she's got it all. I mean, it's no more. No more divided Moldova, which was the case in the in the past. She's got the parliament with a decisive majority, and she's got the presidency, which she won with a decisive mandate. Kostya, how do you interpret Russia's actions here? How do they? I mean, cause they, have they given up on Moldova? I don't think so, but I do think that uh, the Kremlin doesn't control everything, and you have to remember, um, if you look at the vote, a lot of it was delivered by Moldovans living and working in the EU. Mm. And it was, I don't know whether it was a decisive, but it was a big factor. And the moment uh, the, the, the victory, this victory was announced, pro-Kremlin telegram channels exploded with this um, version of basically, this is how they did it. This is how the EU and Washington did it. Mm. They channeled funds. They basically, they organized this vote. Mm-hmm. Again, a lack of agency, lack of free will. Right, right. Women right. are just some kind of crazy, stupid peasants that can't vote themselves. Uh, so, especially if they live in Rome or Bucharest. Uh, so, I think that uh, there are some things that can't be done in Moldova. Uh, and because the influence of the old communists has been waning for, for quite some time now, uh, and Blachetnik was out of the game. It, there, there were no real, um, if you wish, levers right. to manipulate the situation. However, I'm sure that attention will be paid and new ways of trying to influence it, the situation will be dreamt, dreamt up. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether they will, whether they will be effective. Uh, but of course, the, uh, what, what does uh, matter in these circumstances is... First and foremost of all, the Transnistria. Transnistria, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, I'm not a very big specialist on Moldova, not even a specialist, but my understanding is that it can always be manipulated mm-hmm. into demanding something. Again, the autonomous region uh, of Gagauzia, uh, right. uh, close to the, uh, to, to, to the, closer to the Black Sea, uh, to the uh, River Delta, uh, that, that is also a place where Russia has significant right. influence. So, Expect, uh, expect trouble in Transnistria and expect trouble in Gagauzia. Nationalists are coming. Uh, EU-style austerity is coming. So let's confront it. Right. I suspect that's going to be the case. James, uh, you've been patiently waiting to jump in here. (laughs) Let Let me make a general comment. I agree with what Kostya said about how they're going to play Moldova after they pause for breath. But let me make a general comment. And then in the interest of provoking a little bit of disagreement, let me uh, chip in my two cents about Belarus. The general comment is I think over the past two years, the security establishment in Russia, the leadership, have done an order. They've decided we cannot afford, we do not have the means to be everywhere. Uh, We've partially even overextended ourselves. 
So let us accept what would have been inconceivable a few years ago. We will even have an independent actor, i.e. Turkey, um, established in the South Caucasus. Um, and manage that situation, which Russians have managed brilliantly after Karabakh. Because having Turkey there means, at least in this context, you're not having the collective West there. Mm. And although we're not discussing it, same with China in Central Asia. We don't like having China in Central Asia. It's not comfortable for Russia, but at least then the West is not there. So the West is Glavni Prague, and they will, they will accept other things now that they wouldn't accept, but they've been concentrating on their primordial interests. And one of the two most primordial interests, we were discussing one, Ukraine, second one is Belarus. Um, I, should, I should probably be saying this in Lithuania rather than here. Uh, Belarus is neither, today it's neither Poland in the 1980s, uh, nor is it Ukraine after 20, 2004. And there are two reasons for it. It's absolutely in Belarus. There is a civil society. It is active. It's very brave. It's very impressive. And uh, all of that is new and a lot of it unpredictable. But in, the difference is that in Ukraine, civil society, even in, before 2004, was represented in parliament and it had important footholds in official structures of power, including the force ministries, where well, all of that in Belarus is absent. You don't mm. have to do that. Uh, secondly, um, although some eminent people told me in 2014 that in Ukraine, Russia held all the cards, uh, this was never the case. But in Belarus, they do, at least for now. Unpleasant as it is, unpalatable as it is, we need to accept in the West that Belarus today is neither Poland in the 1980s, nor is it Ukraine in 2004. It's true today uh, there is a very active and impressive and very brave civil society in Belarus. This is new. It was not predicted. But the, the real difference is that in Ukraine, civil society was represented in parliament, and it had a strong footprint in official power structures, even force ministries. And this is absolutely not the case in Belarus. The second thing is, even in 2014, some very eminent people were assuring me that Russia held all the cards in Ukraine. Well, it was manifestly not the case. But in Belarus, Russia does. That doesn't mean they always do, but today they do. Um, that makes this uh, far more discouraging and complicated. And, and so I think we have a Hobson's choice in the West, that anything we do is the wrong thing. If we do very little, we're accused of being either cynical or feeble. If we get tough, we impose tougher sanctions. The EU recently has imposed some very tough sanctions. The Russian embrace gets tighter. So for the present, I think what's important is what we should not do. We should not betray our principles or our honor. And by that, I mean two things. First, be absolutely out of the question to consider a return to a policy of building bridges with Lukashenko. Um, this is a bankruptcy over. Um, but secondly, even more dangerous is held in, in the EU that we interest Putin in being part of the solution. Well, by definition, Putin is not going to be part 
of any solution that either Russian civil society or the West can accept. So, fortunately, to bide our time, work with the opposition in uh, much more, much more uh, subtle, less visible ways, uh, and wait until some of these underlying conditions start to change. And they will. Yeah. Uh, and when it does, that could also be very dangerous, because I mentioned what Belarus isn't. But when they do change, if we have a third wave of protest, and it's much more powerful than the last, we might find that Belarus, if you're looking for a historical parallel, becomes Hungary in 1956. Mm. Or Czechoslovakia in 1968. And, and what? No, uh, that was relatively quiet. Well, yes and no. But though it's very telling. I'm glad you mentioned that, because all the Soviet forces that intervened in Czechoslovakia were equipped for war with NATO. And they really saw that as a possibility. That the West acted, they were prepared to. So, mm. uh, you know, this is, a, this is a dangerous situation as well. But we've got to be absolutely objective about uh, what we're looking at. Yeah, no, I, 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 t I tend to agree I with everything. Yeah, I hope so. No, no, you came through loud and clear. I, 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 I agree with everything you say, James. Um, the, the West does not have a lot of good options here. There is one ace in the hole right now, though, and that is not just the development of Belarusian civil society, but I've been looking at some um, some public opinion polls that have been done, credible ones that have been done in, well, I hope they were credible. They were published on the Chatham House website. So I looked at some, <laughs> some public opinion polls that, uh, that, that I um, assume are credible that um, the Public opinion is changing dramatically. Putin's popularity in Belarus, which was historically higher than Lukashenko's and higher than Putin's was in Russia, um, is, is, is nosediving, number one. Number two, Belarusians are increasingly, their, their opinions are increasingly becoming pro-Western. This is manifest in things like a, a pollster asked the question, which historical period do you think the modern Belarusian state should draw on for inspiration? And the top choices were the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and the Belarusian Republic of 1918, uh, before it was absorbed back into the, into the Soviet Union. Back on, at the bringing up the rear is the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. So it, Belarusians, if these polls are to be believed, are, are, are looking for the non-Russian historical examples to inspire their current state, which I see as an unambiguous good sign. I think the West has to play a really, really long game here. And Kostya, you are going to get the last word because I know you're dying to say something here. Um, I think what you said is very interesting because my travels to Belarus kind of in years preceding uh, the elections uh, showed me that uh, there is a paradox. Uh, Lukashenko always kept this narrative of Belarus being the true inheritor of the mantle of the Grand Duchy of uh, of Lithuania and then of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth as a secondary but important narrative uh, for his for for his um, uh, domestic consumption because all these kind of Slavic dances and things and great patriotic war and stuff like that that was mostly for the Russian consumption inside Belarus he developed the second narrative uh, mostly to glean uh, to to suck off EU money some of the best. Uh, uh, former Polish aristocratic estates, castles, were restored with EU money, including uh, Nyasvish, the uh, huge palace of the Radzivils, not far from Minsk. And um, this narrative, which was always there, 
because Lukashenko wanted to, and successfully did it, he wanted to uh, take this kind of nationalist banner uh, from the, uh, tear it away from the opposition. So he developed this narrative. And now, to some extent, it's much easier for Belarusians uh, to go down that road because it already, to some extent, existed. And I think that both in Warsaw and Vilnius, which, which I visit frequently, uh, as you know, uh, they see this, and they are, to some extent, plugging into the same narrative now, including the 3rd of May 1791 constitution, the first European constitution, which was adopted in, uh, in, in the uh, Commonwealth before it was completely torn up by the three empires, uh, partition. Um, so I think that uh, this is an important factor of growing Belarusian civic society. But where I agree with James, we have too much agreement today, actually, <laughs> um, is that it's not Poland uh, in December 9th, in 1981. It is not a timid dictatorship. You can't compare it to Jaruzelski in Poland. Uh, it is going to get bloody before it becomes better. But one reason for Putin not to want to have Belarus officially inside Russia is probably exactly that. But that is if he believes that the Russian civic society uh, is worth anything. Uh, he maybe doesn't, and then he's committing a big mistake. Yeah, no, I don't think he wants it inside of Russia. I think, Costa, you, you put it perfectly earlier. This is a sentiment I, I've shared and, and said before. We're, we're witnessing the latest stage of the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, the formal stage happened in 91, but the informal networks that kept it together remained in place, and 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 now those are fraying and eroding, and, and I do fear it could get bloody. We're bumping up against the end, James, but I want to give you the very last word if you want it. Um, I think next time we should we should have more disagreement as well. <laughs> well, um, well uh, too, much, too much agreement is unhealthy. Too much agreement is unhealthy, but we sincerely agree. So that's I guess that's going to be how it so, is. All right. Not hooked up. It's not by the deep state in Washington. It is. <laughs> no, it was not. Well, on that note, we shall wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. I would like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Tallinn, a city I miss dearly, has been veteran Russian Kremlin watcher and my old friend James Scher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russian and Eurasian program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Also joining us from Moscow has been my another old friend, Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Gentlemen, thank you as always for an enlightening and lively discussion, even though we agreed a lot. Thank you. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance League is in the virtual control room. He could keep all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my messes and making sure we all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. 
and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.